How many of you would say that you are in the Christmas spirit? By a show of hands. All right, that's a good, good number. Uh, some of you, it's interesting, different responses, you know. Some of you have been in the Christmas spirit since pre-Thanksgiving. You know, listening to the music, decorating, singing the songs, and getting excited. Some of you are a little more, you know, I could do without all the hustle and the bustle. You're a little more humbug, right? And some of you, many of you are just kind of indifferent, sort of whatever. We'll take it, we'll leave it. Uh, I, I actually had a kind of a whatever tree in my front yard, uh, a little bitty Colorado spruce, and I decided I was going to go all out this year, and I put a couple strands of lights around it. And I think it embarrassed my family that we had this sort of, you know, snoo- uh, Charlie Brown tree in our front yard. So they went out and really kind of did more than we've ever done with lights in our front. So we went from kind of having a whatever look to having a we're in the Christmas spirit look. And um, interestingly, you see these same types of responses to the birth of Jesus uh, when he was born. And we're going to highlight these different responses that we see. And we're going to talk about the fact that we still continue to see these same three responses today. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 1 through 12, and then I'm going to read verse 16. And this is the very inspired Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Let's pray. Father, this is a time of year that elicits a lot of different responses and reactions. Uh, For some, this is a difficult time of year. It's hard to celebrate. For some, they're quick to celebrate, but it is void of Christ. And so I pray you'll do your work here among us. Uh, Use this text to equip us to celebrate in a way that's honoring to you and that brings us great joy for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I just want to point out the three responses we see to Christ's birth and highlight how we continue to see these same three responses today. The first response is opposition. Verse 1 tells us these events happened after Jesus was born 
in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod the king was a bad guy, and that's an understatement. He was known for having his brother-in-law and mother-in-law killed, put to death. And some of you say, may say, well, that doesn't sound too odd. Right? But not only did he have them put to death, he also had his wife put to death and three of his sons because he was suspicious that they were out for his throne. So he thought there was this conspiracy against him and he put them to death. Uh, in fact, Caesar Augustus famously said, better to be Herod's pig than his son. You have a better chance of survival as his pig than his son. Now the problem occurs, of course, in verse 2, when this group of guys come along asking this question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, Herod was called king of the Jews, but he wasn't born king of the Jews. He was appointed by kind of political means by Rome to be the king over the Jews. And so when this group of guys come along asking this question, hey, we've heard, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? That doesn't sit real well with a guy like Herod. Right? If he's willing to take out his own family because of the threat to his throne, he's for sure knows what he's going to do with this potential child who's been born king of the Jews. So he has a plan. In verses 7 and 8, he says to the wise men, all right, you guys go find him, do your thing, and then come back and tell me where he is so that I can also go and I can worship him as well. And we all know that's not really his plan. This is a deception. And so in a dream, verse 12, the, the wise men are actually warned to not return to Herod and they end up going home a different way. And Herod hears about this and learns about this, that they've not followed the plan. They've not come back to him. They've not told. So that probably in his mind just reinforces the conspiracy that's there. And so look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod became so furious, he decides to have all the boys killed two years old and under. One commentator said this would probably be about 20 boys. The population of Bethlehem at the time, probably about 1,000. So that means probably 20, roughly 20 boys, two years old or under, who were put to death in Herod's attempt to take out this potential king who's been born king of the Jews. Now, I think it's interesting to do a little comparison, contrast between King Herod and King Jesus. Consider some of the differences. First of all, Herod is not born king of the Jews. Jesus is born king of the Jews. Herod is born, he's half Jewish, half descendant of Esau, Edomite. Jesus, on the other hand, is a descendant of Jacob, a descendant of David. He's a Davidic king in the truest kind. He's born king of the Jews. Second, Herod is a brutal king. He's willing to kill his own family. He's a brutal king. Verse 6, Jesus, on the other hand, is a shepherd king. He's a, a, a caring, a tender king. He cares for his people. Verse 6, you... From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is a good shepherd. He's not a brutal ruler like Herod. Third, Herod is willing to do whatever it takes to cling tightly to his throne. It's my throne. No one can take it. I will take my family out before I'll relinquish this throne. Jesus, on the other hand, the rightful king, doesn't hold on to it so tightly. He's willing to hold on to it loosely. 
In fact, Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So here's Herod clinging tightly, and here's Jesus willing to set it aside in order to take on flesh, in order to take on a manger, in order to take on the cross for us. Now we have some, in our pop culture, we have some examples of some characters who are opposed to Christmas. Two that come to my mind are uh, the Grinch, who stole Christmas, and Scrooge. And we have some modern examples in the headlines of some modern day Scrooges and Grinches. I'll mention a couple. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture. <laughs> Interesting. You wouldn't expect that to be a Scrooge. I read on their website this past week with my own eyes that they're requesting people send in ornaments so that they can put them on the Christmas tree at the U.S. Capitol. But they specifically said no religious affiliation. You send, Please send us your ornaments, but we don't want them to have any religious affiliation. Wait a minute. What, what are we decorating here? <laughs> a Christmas tree for Christmas? What do you think Christmas is? Right? No, no religious affiliation. Right? We, we especially see this on our college campuses. Right? Here's a few examples, actually from a few years ago. The Ohio State University suggested that students and staff avoid using the colors red and green in their decorations because they could be interpreted as connoting Christmas to the exclusion of other winter holidays. So no red, no green. Many of you are disqualified here, right? Politically incorrect, wearing your red and your green. Cornell University. No angels, no crosses, no stars of David. At James Madison University, the student government would not allow an a cappella group to sing Mary Did You Know at the annual tree lighting ceremony. Their reason was that the song represents a specific religion. When someone pointed out that they were lighting a Christmas tree, they responded and said, it's not a Christmas tree, it's a unity tree. Right? So we have several unity trees at the back of the room here. <laughs> it's so sad, it's humorous. Right? Now, why? Why is there such opposition to Christmas? Right? Why is there such opposition? And I think the answer is the same reason why there was opposition from King Herod in the very beginning. People don't like the idea that there's a king, that he's the king. It's very exclusive. Right? He's the king. What does that mean? That means he gets to call the shots. He gets to say what's right or wrong, what's moral and immoral. He gets to stand over you and tell you, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. People don't like that, right? We like the idea that I'm the king. I get to call my own shots. I get to decide what I'm going to do and how I believe and how I'm going to live my life. I get to decide what's moral and immoral. And so there's this reaction. It's a, it's a natural reaction that we see from Herod. Opposition to someone coming along claiming to be the king. And we see that same kind of response today to Jesus and to, 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 to Jesus and to the Christian faith, because the Christian faith, the Bible is making this very clear, very exclusive claim, He is the King. There is no other. Jesus alone is the King. And people don't like that. People are offended by that. It's politically incorrect. And perhaps that, that describes you. Perhaps you're a person who doesn't like the idea that Jesus is the King. You're okay with Him, the moral teacher. You're okay with Him, the, the person who teaches good things and says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm great with that. But as soon as we start saying, Jesus is the king, he's the way, he gets to decide what's right or wrong, he has a claim on my life, he gets to decide who I am and what I do and what's right and what's wrong, all of a sudden 
people get squirmy. They don't like the idea of a king. But I want to encourage you to consider. Like, doesn't it make sense? that Look around at the world. Doesn't it make sense there's one behind it all? Doesn't it make sense that all of this is for someone, some king? And doesn't it make sense that it's not you? <laughs> right? Is there anything in your life that, that suggests to you that you're the king? That you're the queen? That, that people are following you and you're getting to call the shots and it's all about you? I mean, just be honest. It's not. Right? It's not about you. This world is not you know, circling around you. Who is it circling around? Who is the king? There's only so many people who have claimed to be the king throughout history. There's only so many people who are making that claim. The Bible's making that claim that Jesus is the king. I would encourage you to consider it. Consider the claim that the Bible is making. Consider the claim that Jesus is making. He himself is making this claim. I am the king. Many people are opposed to him because of that. Opposition is one of the responses we see to Jesus. Second response that we see to Jesus is indifference. This star leads the wise men to Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been a significant city. Bethlehem, not so much. Bethlehem, small little town, a few miles, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. So the star that the wise men see leads them to the significant city, the larger city, Jerusalem. They make the assumption that the star is an indication that royalty has been born, a king's been born, and because it brings them to Jerusalem, they make the assumption this is the king of the Jews. Right? And so they show up and they say, where is he? Where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? And Herod doesn't know. So he kind of gathers the religious people who might know. The Old Testament scholars, the religious folks, the teachers. Look at verses 4 and 5. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. So Herod brings in the religious experts and he says, you guys have this belief that there's going to be a Christ, a king who's going to come and deliver God's people, right? Yeah, 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 we, we have that belief. Uh, in fact, one of the major themes here that we see in this story is how Jesus is, a, is the Christ and a second type of Moses, a deliverer like Moses. Think about in the story of Moses, you have Pharaoh who has all the boys killed. right? And, and in the story of Jesus, you have Herod who has all the boys two years old and under killed. In the story of Moses, you have God providing this miraculous deliverance of Moses and sparing him and saving him for a purpose. And of course, we have in the story here, Jesus is miraculously delivered for a purpose. And with both Moses and Jesus, we have God bringing them out of Egypt. Right? Look at verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. There are a lot of parallels here. Jesus is the Christ whom God sent to deliver his people, to save them, deliver them from bondage. Now the question on the table is, where is he to be born? Did the scriptures say anything about where he's supposed to be born? And the, the, the religious scholars say, yeah, yeah, actually there is. Micah 5 too. He's supposed to be born a few miles from here in Bethlehem. And I think it's interesting how the religious leaders, we have no indication that they make the trip. Like, you know he's been born several miles from here, or he will be born. Here you have wise men coming to town saying, we've heard, we've seen the star. Wouldn't you think you might make the trip a few miles to go see, right? And, and I'm thinking, surely they heard word from the shepherd. Surely there's rumbling about this Christ child who's been born, king of the Jews. They know it's going to happen in Bethlehem, but they're just indifferent. In fact, Look, look at verse 3. Look at how they respond. 
Matthew 2, verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now that raises the question, what does it mean all of Jerusalem was troubled with the idea of the birth of Jesus? Why would all of Jerusalem be troubled? Here's how Craig Blomberg answers this. All Jerusalem probably refers primarily to the religious leaders of Israel who dominated the city, many of whom were also personally installed by Herod. The rejection of Jesus by Jerusalem foreshadows his similar fate at the end of his life. So here's the point. If Herod's not happy, no one's happy. And they know Herod's not going to be happy about this. Their livelihood is at stake. Their lives are at stake. They don't want anybody coming and rocking the boat. Let's keep everything happy. Let's keep Herod happy. Let's keep our jobs. You know, this idea that there's been this Christ born King of the Jews nearby, that actually, that messes their world up. Even if He is God's provision. Even if He is God's Son. Even if He is God's King. Don't rock our boats here. They're indifferent. This is a time of year, I mentioned this last week, start having some college football bowl games on. It's an exciting time of year. There are several bowl games I am particularly interested in and won't miss. One, for example, January 1, Outback Bowl, 10 a.m. I plan to watch that one. Uh, I'm planning to watch the playoff games. You know, there's several that I will make it a priority to watch. Most of the bowl games I don't care anything about. I won't watch. I won't keep up with. I won't even check the scores. Right? For example, last night there were a couple bowls. The RoofClaim.com Boca Raton Bowl. Anybody sitting in front of your seat watching every minute of that game? Or how about the Jimmy Kimmel L.A. Bowl? Right? I wasn't too interested in that one. December 21 is the famous Idaho Potato Bowl. Most of these, I'm, I'm indifferent. I, I, don't, I honestly don't care. And by the way, that's the way most things are in life, or at least should be. You ought to be just, you know, I don't care, whatever you all think, whatever you want to do. You know, most things in life are like that. If you're 100% passionate about everything, that might explain why people don't enjoy being around you, right? <laughs> most people, normal people, you know, most things, you just say, whatever, what do you all want to do? We don't, that's, either way is good with me. Most things in life, you ought to be sort of indifferent about. There are some things in life you can't be indifferent about. There's a handful of things that you can't be ho-hum, whatever, about. And one of those things is the claim that the Bible is making, the claim that Jesus is making, and that is, He is the King. When somebody says, I am the King of the universe, and you owe your very existence to me, it is not a rational response to say, hmm, seems like a nice guy. You know, has some good moral teachings. It's not, that's not a rational response to a person who is saying, I am the king, you owe everything to me, bow down and worship. It would be more rational to say, I oppose this person. I don't believe this person. I think this person's off his rocker. It would make more sense. It would be more rational to be opposed to Jesus than to sort of be whatever, ho-hum toward Jesus. And some of you may be kind of intellectually indifferent toward Jesus. You say, nice guy, good religious teacher, taught some good things. I'm not anti-Jesus. I'm just not one of these fanatics. right? And some of you, you may not be intellectually indifferent to Jesus. You may say, I actually believe Jesus is Lord. But your life, does your life suggest that you're indifferent toward Him? Is your life indicating 
that you believe Jesus is the king and you owe your very existence to him, right? Because here's the point. Indifference toward Jesus is ultimately opposition against Jesus. Indifference toward Jesus is ultimately opposition. Let me give an example. If my kids were just hypothetically sitting on the couch watching TV, and if I were to say to them, it's time to go to bed, get up, go get ready for bed, go to bed, I'll be in there to take you in. If they were to look at me and say, no, that's opposition, and they would get in trouble. Now, if they were to look at me and kind of go, hmm, I think I'll keep watching and keep watching. That's indifference, but that's still opposition, right? At some level, that's really no different than telling me no. It's, it's the same level of disobedience. They are not doing what I told them to do. And so both are equally opposing of God. And by the way, God is equally opposed to both approaches. Listen to what he says in Revelation 3, 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We, we are living in a whatever culture. Everybody just kind of expects you to be whatever about everything. You have your convictions. I have mine. I don't care what you believe. You don't care what I believe. Whatever. And this is just an issue you can't be whatever about. You can't be whatever, ho-hum, indifferent. When a person is making the claim, he is the king of the universe. And this brings us to the third response that we see to Christ, and that is worship. The people in our story who do the worshiping are the wise men. The Greek word here for wise men is magi, magi, magos. Right? Where we get our word magician or magic. Likely believed to be astrologers, people who studied the stars, people who interpreted dreams, perhaps people who did magic the way we think of magic. Uh, verse 1 says they came from the east. Tradition says possibly Persia, possibly Babylon. How many were there? Text doesn't say. It says they brought three gifts. So tradition has sort of said perhaps there were three wise men because there were three gifts. Right? And some of you say, I know there's three because I got a nativity scene at home. <laughs> but three wise men, they've always been there. Right? So there was three. I'm confident. We, we sing the song, We Three Kings. How could it not be three? Right. Only one more small thing to kind of tinker with your nativity scene, and that is uh, the wise men actually weren't there at Jesus' birth. Right? Let, me, let me show you several ways we know this. Uh, first of all, look at Matthew 2.11. It says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. It says they went into the house. Tradition says that Jesus was born in a stable or a barn with animals in a manger. Now the reality is, the manger could have been in a house. Jesus might have been born in a house. There's nothing that says he wasn't. It says he was placed in a manger. So the question is, where was the manger? Perhaps it was in a house. Secondly, Matthew refers to, to him as a child, while Luke refers to him as a baby. So that's an indication that he's older at the time, at the time that Matthew's writing about. But third, and I think most convincingly, Herod asks, when did you guys see the star? When did you see the star that appeared so that you made your trip to Jerusalem? When did you see it? And then Herod proceeds to have the baby boys two years old and under killed. Why? Verse 16, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Verse 16. 
So Herod has this belief that Jesus is somewhere closer to two than newborn. So for these reasons, it appears that when the wise men show up on the scene, Jesus has already been born and perhaps is one or one and a half or two. So some of you are maybe a little upset with me. Don't shoot the messenger, first of all. And if you want to keep the wise men in the nativity set, I'm fine with that. Right? I'm indifferent toward how you arrange your nativity scene. You want to keep them there? Keep them there. You want to move them away a little bit? That's fine. You want to take your nativity scene back and get your refund? It's fine with me. I'm indifferent. It's interesting to compare the wise men and the religious leaders. The wise men are willing to travel apparently up to two years to come and see this baby. The religious leaders, on the other hand, are located several miles away. Like 20 minute, 30 minute. Well, I guess if you're walking, it'd be a little longer than that. They're sprinting, right? A very short distance to Bethlehem, right? Not willing to go. Think about the comparison, the contrast. Uh, the wise men respond to God's revelation, the natural revelation of a star, perhaps a miraculous revelation of a star. They respond. You know, God provides a star, they respond to it. The, the religious leaders, they have God's word. They have God's revelation in God's word, knowing that the Christ is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Surely they've heard rumors. They've just had the wise men come and tell them they've heard rumors. They believe there's a king who's been born, and yet unwilling to go. Right? Not willing to respond to God's revelation. So see, think about the irony. Pause and think about the irony. The people who are closest to Jesus, both in terms of proximity, location, and in terms of worldview, Jewish, believe in the Old Testament, the, the people who are closest and nearest to Jesus are the ones who oppose Him the most. And the ones who are furthest away in proximity, and not just proximity, but you know the astrologers, the magicians, the pagans from Persia, from Babylon, they're the ones who are willing to go at great lengths to come and embrace Him. And that's one of the themes of the Gospels. The people you would expect to embrace Him are the ones who oppose Him. And the people who, who you would expect to, to oppose Him are the ones who embrace Him. It's one of the messages of the Bible. It's, it's a message for all. We saw this last week. We talked about Corinth. We said Corinth is a very unexpected town for God to call Paul to be there for so long to plant a church that plays a significant role. Two letters. Corinth? It's unexpected. God works in unexpected ways. He uses unexpected people. People we wouldn't, we wouldn't have expected. I think it's also interesting, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, you have Jesus telling His disciples, go out into all the nations. Make disciples. And at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel, you have the nations coming to Jesus to worship Him. The Magi from the East coming. Which, by the way, is a fulfillment of many, many of the texts of the, of the Old Testament. That the nations will come and bow down and worship the true King. So the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, the nations are coming and worshiping Him. The end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is saying, go out to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them. Notice that the wise men respond with worship. Look at verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. <clears throat> and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. 
So they, they worship. And I think we can learn from them. I think we can learn something about worship from them. First of all, we learn that worship involves joy. Notice in verse 10, he says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. He couldn't say it any stronger. They rejoiced exceedingly, and it was with joy. You can't say it more emphatically than that. And think about the circumstances weren't great. They're in Bethlehem, a very humble town. They've made this huge trip, and they arrive in Bethlehem. And presumably in a house that's pretty, I don't know, humble, right? I might think this is kind of a letdown. Like, we traveled all this way to see this royal king, and this is it. This young girl, baby, humble house, humble town. Is this what we traveled two years for? Right? But yet they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because their worship and their joy was not contingent on their circumstances. It was contingent on who this child was. And there's a good, a good lesson for us to learn there. Our joy is not contingent on our circumstances. Our worship is not contingent on our circumstances. We've had a lot of challenging circumstances, all of us, this past year, the past two years. We've lost loved ones. We've lost friends. We've had three funerals the past three days. We had a funeral here on Thursday, a funeral here on Friday, and a funeral here on Saturday. And here we are worshiping today. How can we do that? Because our, our joy and our worship is not contingent on circumstances. And by the way, that's one of the purposes of worship, to remind ourselves of the joy we have. Right? We come and we sing these songs that remind us of these truths. Who we are, who God is, what He's done for us, the significance that the child has been born, that He grows up to be the King, lay down His life. We, just, we know these things. It's not that we don't know them. But we come and we just hear them again and remind ourselves again and sing the songs again and open God's Word again and remind ourselves of these truths. Why? What are we doing? We're disciplining ourselves to worship. We're disciplining our hearts to be joyful. We're tuning our hearts to sing His grace, as the great line says from the great hymn. So notice that worship is characterized by joy. Joyful worship. Second, worship involves time. The wise men gave their time to travel to see this child to worship. Presuming they spent two years. Think about that. Two years. Think about what you could do with two years of your life. You might say, that's kind of a waste. Travel for two years? to bow down and worship a baby born king of the Jews? Here's the point. You're giving your time to something. That's one thing that makes us all the same. We're all equal in that we all have the same amount of time. Every single one of us has the exact same amount of time. The question is, what are you doing with your time? Where are you investing your time? And are you investing it in a way that's worshipful? Are you investing it in a way that's honoring the king? I want to encourage you this season to invest your time wisely. Invest it worshiping. You're already here worshiping this morning, so way to go. You're already investing your time wisely. You're tuning your heart to sing God's grace. Way to go. I encourage you to invest your time in private worship as well. Worshiping the Lord privately. And reading His Word. Reading these accounts. Read them with your family. I encourage you to invest your time by loving people well. God has placed people in your path your neighborhood, your grocery store. Look for ways to serve, to meet physical, tangible needs. And like we talked about a couple weeks ago, look for ways to talk to them about Christmas. Are you celebrating Christmas? What do you do to celebrate Christmas? Why do you celebrate Christmas? Can I share with you why we celebrate Christmas and what it means for us? 
Look for ways to build bridges to talk about. It's going to cost you time, but you've got time. We've all got time. We've got the same amount of time. The question is, are we going to invest our time for the purpose of worshiping God and bringing glory to God? Third, notice that worship involves sacrifice. Um, the, uh, in verse 11, they bring their gifts. The, the gifts are valuable. The, the gifts are of value, and they give what's valuable for the king. They bow down and give them to them. Where, where you give your money, where you give what's valuable to you, is an indication of what you worship. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. I do want to kind of do a time out and say thank you for the way you've served our church by giving financially. Our church is doing very well financially. We are 3% right now ahead of our anticipated giving. So we've spent significantly less than we budgeted and we've received more, 3% more than what we anticipated receiving. And so you're just a very generous church and thank you. And we'll continue to be good stewards. And I also want to say thank you on behalf of the ministerial staff for the kind and generous uh, Christmas love offering that you gave us last week. Uh, we really appreciate it. But the point here is, you're giving your time, your energy, your resources, your affections to someone, to something. Think about that. Your affections, your mind, your energy, your time, it's going towards something. It's going towards someone. The question is, is it going to the king? Is it going to the one who ultimately is owed it all? and demands it all. How are you responding to Jesus the King? I hope you're not responding with opposition. Saying, I'm going to cling to my own throne. I'm going to be the King. I'm not going to listen and have somebody else be the King of me. I hope you don't respond with kind of cold indifference. Whatever. Jesus is just alright with me. He's alright. Good guy. Taught some good things, but I'm not going to get fanatical about it. Third is worship. Like the wise men, willing to leave their home and travel for up to two years in order to bow down before this baby and give him what was valuable. Here's the point. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it because he is the king. And he's not just any old king. He's not your normal kind of king. He's a king who willingly set aside the divine right, the divine prerogative, in order to take on flesh and become one of us, in order to go to a manger and be born among animals in order to ultimately go to a cross and die a death in our place, a death that we deserve for us. He loved us so much. He laid down His life for us. Don't let proximity keep you from Jesus. Don't say, I'm too far from Him. I've done too much. I'm too separated. The wise men didn't think like that. God uses unlikely, unexpected people. All He requires of you is to recognize you are far away from Him. That's the one requirement is that you realize you are far away. You are very undeserving. You, are, uh, you have, because of your sins, separated yourself from Him. All He requires is that you see you are an undeserving candidate. And then all you have to do is go to Him. Go to Him with everything you have to worship Him, to trust Him, and to follow Him as the King. Let's pray.